afternoon. Thank you guys for uh, coming back, continuing our study in 1 Samuel. Um, there's probably about three weeks off due to various um, events going on. So just a brief recap before we um, get into everything. I just want to take you back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, looking at verses 13 and 14 really quickly, just kind of setting a scene for what we're going to see here in the next couple weeks. Saul is out there doing what we've seen Saul do, um, disobeying God, looking to bring glory to himself, seeking to try to do the right thing, but in always seemingly the wrong way. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 13, Samuel says to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly, thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now thy kingdom shall not continue the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. I wanted to refer back to that point because, again, it's setting the scene for what we're going to see in the next couple weeks. And again, a very harsh warning that Samuel is giving to Saul, saying, because you didn't obey, now your kingdom, your dynasty is going to be taken away from you and given to someone else, someone who will actually obey the Lord. Um, it's a harsh warning, but again, um, we're looking at this, and at this point, it's a good warning. We see this a lot with um, prophets coming and warning these people so that they'll actually repent and, and turn back. At this point, there's nothing immediately happening. A successor has not yet been named. There's not actually a removal of Saul as king, but it's a strong warning, which kind of puts him on thin ice. And last time we met, we covered the first half of chapter 14. We saw Jonathan uh, once again going off on his own, if you remember. Uh, he kind of left with his armor bearer, just the two of them. The king's son somehow is able to sneak away and nobody notices. Um, he's out there fighting against a garrison of the Philistines, defeating them all by themselves. I mean, again, Jonathan's giving glory to God for this. And look at uh, chapter 14, verse 23. At the close of this, after everything has come to pass, um, they discover that Jonathan is gone. He returns from battle. Um, where we left off last time we met in chapter 14, verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day. Again, we see that the Lord is the one who saved Israel yet again. It wasn't just Jonathan in his own power. It wasn't Saul's leadership, even though Saul tried to take credit for it. Um, the Lord is the one who saved Israel that day. And while Saul tried to take credit, we're going to see him continuing um, kind of his deterioration. And after this warning, you would assume that there would be uh, correction or repentance on his part, but instead he just continues to deteriorate, continues to disobey um, and dishonor the Lord. So before we get into the rest of the chapter, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, the other, just another opportunity we have to come together and open up your word and see what it is that you would have for us. We thank you that, um, that you, you made scripture so clear to us that we have it so accessible in our current time, and that we look at New Testament believers and all they had were different portions of Scripture and that they would share it um, through oral tradition, just being able to share stories. And God, as we look at this story uh, briefly this afternoon, I just pray that you would make it clear to us um, that we need to be honoring you and that, that you are the one who brings victory and not our own abilities, not our own talents or any army that we have. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So flip to down to verse 24. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 24 through 26. Again, they've just had this great victory. Everything is going seemingly uh, going very well. Verse 24, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, 
interesting beginning right after a victory. Why would they be distressed? We see Saul, you'd think that he'd be celebrating a victory. Instead, here's what he does. For Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be any man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. We're seeing an incredibly foolish Foolish thing that Saul is doing, he's, he's ordering his men to fast until evening. Um, fasting is usually something that the individual takes upon himself as a commitment between him and God. It's not something that is necessarily ordained on this large scale, especially for the king to be placing it on them. Again, the people were distressed. There's no blessing that is to be mentioned from this. Saul doesn't say, we will do this, the Lord will bless um, our obedience to him, and he will bless us as him being the source of our strength. Instead, there's nothing positive about this. Saul is upset, he's angry, and all he does is say, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening. There's nothing positive here. All it is is basically, do this or you will be cursed if you have anything. And again, they're going out, they're seeing food, they're seeing honey drop, but 26 says, No man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Now this is the oath that had nothing to do with God. God's not even mentioned in this. There's no relationship between this fasting and between God. They're afraid of Saul and afraid of his oath. Um, very interesting, kind of a strong abuse of power, which we continue to see here. Uh, verse 27 through 30. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. So Jonathan has no idea that this was even said. His own son uh, has no clue of this. And again, we saw the, the consequence and this curse that's going to happen if you disobey it. Wherefore he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put, it, put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day, and the people were faint. So looking at those two verses, we see something incredible that this big, this oath was given. Saul obviously feels very strongly about this. Um, no one tells his son. Jonathan has no idea. The one who had just been victorious in battle, who had actually obeyed the Lord, no one tells him about it until do you notice when they say it? Verse 28, after he eats the honey. He finally eats the food, and then someone stands up and says, Oh, by the way, Jonathan, now that you've eaten, your dad actually clearly made this oath that anyone that does this would be cursed. But also notice, close of verse 27, his eyes were enlightened. After battle, you can imagine the amount of uh, physical exhaustion that would have taken place and all of this that it entails. And verse 28, and the people were faint. Again, fasting is not meant to bring you to a great uh, period of weakness. It's, it's supposed to be looking towards God and looking at Him for the strength. And it's incredible to see that Jonathan um, disobeyed this oath, but he was enlightened. And the people that were obeying this, um, this awful oath and vow, that they were faint. Jonathan responds in verse 29. He says, Then said Jonathan, My father hath troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if haply the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. 
For had there not now, had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Jonathan, in verse 29, even he's saying to these other men that his father has brought trouble on the land. That's not a ringing endorsement of your father. And more so than just your father, that's your king, the king of Israel. And again, they hadn't had a king for a while, so all the prestige that comes with this, it's very serious. And Jonathan is saying that Saul, his own dad, his own king, has brought trouble upon the land. And in verse 29 and 30, that he's saying, Look at me. I ate of this. You see that I'm not faint. You see how I'm enlightened. He's encouraging them to eat because what they were doing didn't make any sense. This foolish fast had distressed these people and made them weak. Verse 31, And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. Once again, we see this idea of all these people being very weak, very faint. Um, simply speaking, as a military leader, it's not a good thing to have your soldiers having no strength. Um, especially when you're going up against an army that's already um, a lot more powerful than you, already has a lot more people than you, you really want your people to be in the best shape. Um, as I always read through this, I keep reminding myself that I'm not some great military leader, but even though Saul had some success, which we'll see at the end, um, there's a lot of things he did that didn't make sense, just practically speaking, even. So he's weakening his people from this. Verse 32, And the people flew upon the spoil, and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with blood. So now we see in verse 32 another effect. Not only were these people um, so weakened by this fast, but when the fast is actually lifted, once evening actually comes, we see this kind of barbaric picture of them. It says literally, and the people flew upon the spoil, taking sheep, oxen, calves. They're, they're acting like animals eating these animals. They're so hungry and they're so um, just thirsting after any kind of food that they can have that they actually eat them with the blood. And the Jews, and we're going to see um, Saul kind of correcting this, which seems odd, but they were required to drain out the blood. Blood was never supposed to be part of the food. So there's a lot of rules that they're aware of that they're just completely forgetting about. They don't care. They're not going to sit there and take the time to prepare the meat the way that they should to do anything. They're just jumping on these animals, like animals, eating them with the blood, um, forbidding every custom that they know. So once again, we see this implication and showing that, that Saul's fast was not one that was honoring to God. It actually led them to further their disobedience towards God. Um, just an incredible scene there, and very, very strong um, picture, as we always see in the Old Testament. Verse 33, Saul does his best to try to correct the people. Verse 33 says, Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord, and that they eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people, and say unto them, Bring me hither every man his ox, and every man his sheep, and slay them here, and eat. And sin not against the Lord in eating with the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night, and slew them there. So we see this, we see him figuring it out. He's commanding the people to bring their animals uh, to be slain, to drain out the blood, and he's actually making the effort for them to do it the right way. The thing that he had just very much been a part of and causing, he is now trying to, to correct it, and he's going to build an altar, which we see in verse 35. And Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. 
And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night, and spoil them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seemeth good unto thee. Then said the priest, Let us draw near hither unto God. So we're seeing Saul coming up with this idea. They're, they're going to make an altar. Um, they're going to be offering a fellowship offering. They're, the people are supposed to be eating this in the right way. And again, Saul doesn't truly show that he understands um, the idea of what the offering is meant to be for God. He wants to make an offering. He wants to build an altar because he's just going to go into battle. He assumes that he's going to be able to make a sacrifice offering to God and everything is going to be fine. His sincerity is irrelevant to him. If I just do this, then God will reward me. God will bless me. Again, he's simply doing the actions without any heart motive. Any, um, there's nothing genuine about his heart as he's doing this. Just like when we uh, saw a couple chapters ago about him wanting to take the ark into battle. It was this idea of, well, as long as we have that, we're going to be fine. I don't need to know God. I don't need to be close to him at this point. I just need to bring the ark with me. So he doesn't show that he truly gets it. And again, he's going against these Philistines. He's going to surprise them in the morning. And notice it says that he doesn't want to leave any of them. 36, and let us not leave a man of them. So he says this idea, and the priest says to him, uh, wisely, the priest comes and he says, let us draw near hither unto God, saying, hey, maybe we should wait and see what God wants us to do first. You know, we're in a hurry. You want to avenge yourself. You're kind of feeling um, a little sour over the way things have been going. And the priest says to wait to seek the will of God. Um, that seems like something that the king of Israel should already be doing, doesn't it? This is your position. Your position isn't to make your own decisions, but to seek God in this. So the priest gives this advice, verse 37, And Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him not that day. So Saul is asking the Lord what it is that he would have him do. And at the end of verse 37, we see that the Lord remains silent. He doesn't give him an answer. Um, put yourself in those shoes. Have you ever um, asked God, God, what is it that you want me to do? What's your will in this situation? And there's no answer. It's interesting because he does this but yet he's still going to do his own thing. As we've seen from Saul, no answer doesn't mean wait longer. It means God's not answering. He must not care. I'm going to do what it is that I want to do. Verse 38, And Saul said, Draw ye near hither all the chiefs of the people, and know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. So he starts thinking about it. Well, why wouldn't God answer me? I put this oath out, maybe I need to actually see if there's any sin in the camp. And we've seen other stories of sin in the camp and how serious that can be. So Saul is seeking to find this out. Verse 39, he actually kind of boasts a little bit about himself and his son. It says, For as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answer him. Continuing down verse 40, Then he said unto all Israel, Be ye on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said unto Saul, Do what seemeth good unto thee. So he's, he's setting this up of, Okay, me and Jonathan, we're going to stand over here. Everybody else go to the other side. We're going to find out where this, where this sin is. It's clearly not in me, because why would Saul look at himself, right? At this point, he's, he's king. He's, he's completely doing everything right. 
And it's certainly not in my son Jonathan. I mean, look what had just happened. There's no way Jonathan would have disobeyed an oath that I made. So we're going to go over here and we're going to cast these lots and find out who the horrible sinner is. And of course, uh, verse 40, Do what seemeth good unto thee. Of course, the people aren't going to go against their king in this situation. They're simply saying, yeah, Saul, you're, you're the king. However you want to do this, that's what we're going to do. Verse 41, Therefore, Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So they cast lots, and what comes up? It goes to Saul and to Jonathan. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. It's interesting that when you look at this, that God would actually be honoring this in the right way. Um, the oath was wrong. The way that Saul is going about everything is very much wrong. He's not obeying God, not doing what he's supposed to do. But God still honors what it is that Saul is doing and trying to find out who did this in the casting of the lots. That he still honored Saul, not necessarily so much as just an individual, but he honored the office of his position as king of Israel. Um, God, is, God is allowing this to be honored. And what we're going to see is, we're going to see Jonathan being uplifted, actually, through all of this. Verses 43 and 44. And I know I'm kind of moving very quickly through this. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. Again, Saul had no idea what it is that Jonathan was doing. He may not have even known that Jonathan didn't even hear him. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. So he confesses what it is that he did. Now put yourself in this position of Saul. You've just made this oath, a vow before all of the people there. How hard would it be, what response would you give when everyone sees Jonathan confessing to this? Jonathan acknowledges that he did the very thing the oath said not to do. He's aware of it, because in verse 43, he even ends with, I did this, and lo, I must die. He's telling Saul, I did this, and I know what this means. I know that that means I must die. Put yourself in Saul's position, not just as king, because we're going to see the different response here, but as a parent. I'm going to personally look for every reason to not have him die that I can. I'm going to find any excuse. Well, okay, Israel, you guys didn't understand what I meant by, by die. That was a little different. Any way that we can get out of this is what I'm going to seek to do. Verse 44, And Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. Saul steps out in front of the people, and he says, for thou shalt surely die. He chooses to save face for this vow that he made and all of these comments back in uh, verse 39. Everything that it is that we see with this corrupt law, Jonathan um, confesses to it, and Saul stands firm to what it is that he's saying. He said, okay, you did it, and you will surely die. It's the same phrase that we see in Genesis chapter 2. It's incredible to me as, I, as you would read through this, just as a parent of saying, Saul, what are you doing? Like, that's your kid. Find any other way. But he made a vow to God. All the people had seen it. And as the king, he's finally actually leading by example 
of, I made a vow to God, I'm going to, I need to go through with this. But what do we see in verses 45 and 46? And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. I love verse 45 because you can kind of see the scene. Saul and Jonathan are off on their own side. Everyone else is over here. They're having this little family argument about who's, are you going to die, am I not going to die, that kind of serious conversation that we all have. And we're seeing this interaction, and Saul says, yeah, you did this, so you shall surely die. And then everyone else over here in the camp is saying, hey, Jonathan's not going to die. Not one hair on his head is going to fall because God is with him this day. Which, you know, the implication of that is God is with Jonathan and Saul. He's not with you. Um, bold to say to your king. Um, pretty, pretty empowering if you're Jonathan. Um, pretty encouraging as well of seeing all these people rally around you. Just an incredible scene of these people rising up to protect him. In verse 46, this is after they finally settle everything. Then Saul went up from following the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. By the time all of this ended, the Philistines had already gone. There wasn't going to be time for this battle. So pretty much they had just gone this whole day. Saul was embarrassed. Jonathan was uplifted, and he didn't even get to kill the Philistines. A pretty rough day for Saul, based on if you look at his interests. He loves to fight. He likes to receive praise. And none of this happened. Verses 47 uh, through 48 kind of give us a summary of Saul's major victories. I'm going to probably stumble over some of these words, even though I tried to say them right before. But as I told Pastor Ben, I'm just going to keep going. Verse 47, So Saul took the kingdom over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab and against the children of Ammon and against Edom and against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. And with wheresoever he turned himself, he vexed them. And he gathered in host and smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. We see this just kind of a, a passing um, authorship of Saul's victories. These are major victories. These are incredible things for Saul, um, just as a leader and as a king. Great things to have on a resume. Great things to be remembered by. But look at how much of this text is actually given to his victories. It's, eh, yeah, Saul did some major victories. That's cool. It's just incredible that that as we read um, through these stories and as we look at 1 Samuel, that Saul was actually an incredible military leader. Incredible. And he had so much success, and we just, it just kind of glosses over these successes. It just glosses right over it, because even though he was successful, he was disobedient to God. He wasn't seeking after his heart. God isn't the one that was empowering Saul each and every step of the way, that Saul tried to do all of this all by himself. But it was, the Bible tends to focus more on his failures as a king. Saying, yeah, he may have been successful, but he wasn't doing it the right way. He wasn't honoring me in it. And really, where is the victory in that? It just kind of made, makes you reflect a little bit of, yeah, I might be able to do these things. I might be very successful in certain areas, but am I doing it in a way that's honoring to God? Because if Saul can do all of this, and it barely is just a footnote in the text, what does that mean for us? He wasn't doing it the right way. And we saw all of the attention that Jonathan was getting. Verse 49 through 52, to close out the chapter, just kind of summarizes 
his family. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishui and Melchishua. Melchishua. Sound good? Maggie said yes, I like that. And the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Merab, and the younger, Michelle. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of mm, Aham. What do you guys got? There you go. And the name of the captain of his host was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner was the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. There's a lot of family members mentioned. We're actually going to be introduced in a little bit more detail to a lot of them. So we're going to kind of get into them as we um, meet them. And there's actually a couple other sons that aren't mentioned and other members of the family that we're going to see later on. But at the end of this chapter, at verse 52, and there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And we see that he took any strong man, anybody that he saw that could help him in army or service, he drafted him. He took him. Said, hey, you're coming with us, you're going to fight. Um, and isn't that what we were told in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the prophecy of, hey, if you want a king, he's going to do this. He's going to take the men, he's going to take the women. Pretty much everything that you own and want to do will be his. Um, just incredible, because 52, again, we've already seen this coming true a couple different times. But right there, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. He sees a man that's worth something to him, and he just takes him away to fight for him. Uh, just incredible. I know that we kind of went through that um, pretty quickly. There's a lot going on in chapter 14. We're going to see in chapter 15 something um, even more, um, more harsh of a rebuke of Saul. We're going to continue once again to see him slowly deteriorating, continuing to serve himself. Um, but it's just an incredible lesson to be learned that, that Saul, Saul was out making vows I'm seeking to avenge himself. And we know the Bible tells us that God is the one who deals with that. We don't need to be the ones seeking our own vengeance. God is the judge. We aren't the, the judges of this and that. Jonathan, it's incredible when I looked at the person of Jonathan in this chapter of seeing that he lived his life in a way that everybody went against their king, went against Saul to protect him, that they recognized that God was with Jonathan and not with their king. Um, you guys already know how much they looked up to their king, how much they wanted a king. But they're looking at him and saying, God is not with him. God is with Jonathan, and we're not going to let him be killed. I mean, that was simply by Jonathan living his life and doing what it is that God had asked him to do. I'm um, Just an incredible encouragement for us. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you again for, for today. God, we thank you for, for this story. Thank you for, um, for the ability that we have to, to look into your word and see the, the image of, of Jonathan obeying you and God, we just thank you for the response of the people of Israel that they were able to, even at that time, um, discern who it is that was serving you, that they were able to see Jonathan by the way that he lived, by his, his attitude and his actions, that they were able to see that he was following after you. God, we thank you that we're um, so clearly able to, to study your word, that you make it clear to us, that you allow us to understand it, that you don't um, try to make it this, this large puzzle for something that we can never understand but you want us to know you you want us to draw closer to you and god i just pray that as we continue through our study we're going to see um, each and every week how important it is that we obey you that that you've called us to obedience and that we can help 
one another actually obey you together. God, I just pray that you keep us safe as we go. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Next, next week, there's a business meeting.